Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In today's Gospel, Matthew chapter 4, the calling of the first disciples is recorded. That is, the first four of the twelve. And the number twelve is not arbitrary. Jesus didn't call twelve men because that's all he could fit in the Mercedes Sprinter van. No, the calling of the twelve harkens back to what? The formation of the twelve tribes of Israel. The Gospels then, this is just one example of this, the Gospels then are not written in a vacuum. They're not a stand-alone story. Jesus did not come and start a brand new religion. No, the Lamb of God was slain from the foundations of the earth. The Gospels are this recap, this recapitulation, this retelling, and this completion This climax of the story of Israel. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And this is made explicit by the gospel writers. Matthew, the best gospel, because I'm named Matthew. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Right out of the gate, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This immediate connection, this continuity with what had come before. So let's focus for just a moment on this idea that the Gospels are a retelling and fulfillment of the Israel story. And we'll stick with the Gospel of Matthew, not because I'm a narcissist, but because Matthew is the gospel that we're going to be going through during this Christian year, year A, in the Revised Common Lectionary. Matthew chapter, and this is a few examples. Matthew 2, what happens? Herod slaughters the baby boys in Bethlehem because he's threatened by King Jesus. This corresponds to what? The slaughter of the Hebrew baby boys under Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized. This corresponds to the exodus, to Israel crossing the Red Sea into the wilderness. And where does Jesus go right after his baptism? Matthew chapter 4. He goes in the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. To do battle, to bring victory where Adam had failed. To bring victory where we all failed. To bring victory where Israel failed. Because they didn't do so hot in the wilderness, did they, that first generation? They grumbled and complained. And we're not full of faith, but bereft of it. And then Matthew 5. I mean, it just keeps tracking with the Israel story. Because what did Israel do after what happened with Israel Uh, After they had been in the wilderness about 50 days, they went to Mount Sinai and they received the law. What does Jesus do in Matthew chapter 5? After his baptism, after his time in the wilderness, he stands on a mountain and gives his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He gives the law of Christ, which by the Spirit is written on our hearts. So 
So there's this hearkening back. But it's not so much that the Gospels point back to the history of Israel. It's that the events of Israel's history are types of the events in the gospel. They are signposts pointing to and finding their fulfillment, finding their ultimate meaning in the person and work of Jesus. Thus, to bring it all together, the formation of the 12 tribes of Israel is a type of the calling of the 12. The constitution of the people of God under the Old Covenant, finds its fulfillment in the renewal of the people of God, in the the reforming of the people of God under the New Covenant, that is, in the calling of the disciples. The calling of the disciples, and this is where it gets really fun, is by extension, the calling into being of the church. That's what's going on in this gospel. You'll hear as you uh, kind of get into, especially those of you, uh, some seminarians, or you read scholarly stuff, that, you know, it's only in the gospel of John that Jesus claims to be divine. Absolute rubbish. Right here, we have Jesus doing something that only God can do, namely calling the people of God into being. The calling of the disciples is the calling into being of the church, which is the renewed Israel. There's continuity and discontinuity. Galatians 3.29 brings this all to a head. Paul says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Christ fulfills the promises made to Abraham because Jesus is the seed in and through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. And going back even further, let's go back to the beginning, to Adam and Eve. Jesus is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. Let's hang out in Genesis 1 for a minute. Not really a hangout, but anyways. Genesis 1 and following... And this is absolutely critical for us to understand the creation narratives. This is a temple-building narrative. It's a story of God making for himself an abode, a dwelling place, a home. That's what a temple is. It's the house of a God. And when a temple is being completed... The penultimate event, the ultimate event would be the consecration where the deity actually comes to indwell the temple. But the penultimate event is the putting of the image of the God into the temple so that all who enter it will know who it is that they are being called upon to worship. So God placed into his temple the cosmos, heaven and earth, these creatures, 
a man and a woman who bear his image, who are tasked, who are given a vocation to reflect the nature, the character, the goodness of God out into the world so that all may know who they are called to worship, so that the borders of Eden, Eden was this arboreal garden temple upon a mountain, this place where heaven and earth overlapped. And their job was to expand, fill the earth, subdue it, to expand the borders of the Garden of Eden so that the earth, to quote Isaiah and Habakkuk, that the earth would be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You ever thought about that phrase? That's kind of weird. As the waters cover the sea. Aren't the waters the sea? It's that the creation that God would dwell specifically in human beings in us and we in him. Now that's not pantheism. That doesn't mean this podium is God. It doesn't mean I'm going to go become a tree hugger. It is they in panism. God in all, or as Paul says, God will be all in all. He will dwell with us and in us and, and us with and in him. Distinction but real union. So from Genesis to Revelation, it is evident that God with us, Emmanuel means God with us, it's evident that God with us is God's goal. That's the arc of history. That God with us is God's whole. That heaven, God's space, and earth, man's space, will become one flesh. On account of the person and work of Jesus, on account of his incarnation, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. Don't want to leave out anything important. It will be on earth as in heaven, fully and finally at the last day. At the end of Revelation, and if I officiated your wedding, you've heard this before. At the end of Revelation, when heaven or earth are married, that's the imagery. The new Jerusalem, heaven comes down, what does the text say? As a bride adorned for her husband. At the end of Revelation, when heaven and earth are married, God says in words what he says through action in Genesis 1. That Revelation 21.3, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. If Revelation is the marriage of heaven and earth, then Genesis 1 is the engagement thereof. And if we want to keep the, the numptial, the marital metaphor going, then we could refer to the fall of man in Genesis 3 as the breakup. Uh, earth saying to heaven, I think we should see other people. Because our first parents, and we along with them, the, the fall of man is not just something that happened, which it did. 
But it's something that happens all the time, does it not? That we choose to go our own way. We choose to do our own thing. We, we choose the things of this world over the things of God. So our first parents, and we along with them, failed in our, failed in our vocation as image bearers to reflect God out into the world, to be God-like, to be holy as he is holy. We opted for our own way, and we have fallen into sin and death. But God, and we know how the story ends, has rescued us. He did not leave us in our plight, but called a man, Abram, along with his family, to be the means by which he would rescue the earth. A rescue which ultimately came through. He who is both Abraham's descendant and maker, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what on earth does all of this have to do with the calling of the disciples? I mean, we've been all over the Bible, and we're going to keep jumping around. We've been talking about some temple theology. What does that have to do with our theme for the day, right? Our very evangelistic collect, which what a collect does, the collect of the day, is collecting our prayers into one intention. It's summing up the scriptural and liturgical theme of the day. And it says, give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works. The connection is this, is that image bearing and evangelism are two sides of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin. The great commission passages in the, in the scriptures to go into all the world and preach the gospel. To preach the gospel to every creature. To, to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. To teach people to observe all that Christ has commanded us. Oftentimes we leave that clause off when we're talking about the Great Commission. Those passages are nothing less, though they are certainly more, but they're nothing less than this repetition of, this fulfillment of the calls to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Israel. We are to be in the kingdom of God. We are to be fruitful and to multiply. We are to expand the borders of the new Eden. We are to be, and we see this in the Gospels, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. The church is to be a city set on a hill which cannot be hidden. Matthew 5, 16. Image bearing, following Christ, becoming like Christ. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. It's inevitable. If you follow Christ, you will become a fisher of men. And, and here's, here's this logic right here from our Lord, Matthew 5, 16. He says, let your light so shine before men so that you can virtue signal on Instagram. No, okay. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and think you're such a good person. No, no. So that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. 
That when the life of Christ is made manifest in you, people come to know the Lord through you. Let's keep jumping around. Psalm 8, which is about image bearing. And then we'll make, I won't call it our final descent, but our initial descent. Psalm 8 is a song, as all the psalms are, which marvels at and glories in the human vocation of image bearing and ultimately in the mystery of the incarnate Christ, who is the, all caps, the image the exact iconographic representation of the Father. And Psalm 8 employs uh, a literary device called an inclusio. That is, it begins and it ends with the exact same words. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And the implication is, by way of this inclusio, is that the Lord's name is made majestic in all the earth through the faithfulness of human beings and then ultimately, as we know, supremely in and through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And now, let's bring it up to now, what situation do we find ourselves in post-Pentecost? Now, the ministry of Christ and his fulfillment, his perfect fulfillment of the human vocation to bear the image. His ministry continues through his mystical body, the church, who operates in the power of the Holy Spirit by whom she is indwelt, proclaiming in word, in deed, and in sacrament, the message of the cross. Both advancement in the Christian life, so spiritual growth, growing in faith, becoming more like Jesus, going from milk to meat, coming to a place of maturity together as a local body, individually, as families. So advancement in the Christian life and the introducing of others to Jesus, evangelism, are only possible through the cross of Jesus Christ. In the scriptures, we're seeking the crucified and risen Jesus, for it is he of whom the scriptures speak. In the sacrament, we come to the foot of the cross where we receive the benefits of Christ's passion and death. And it is through the preaching of the gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now 1 Corinthians 15. If you ever want a definition of the gospel, I just suggest you use the one in the Bible. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's through the proclamation of that message. It's through that good news. Which is displayed not only in what we say, but in what we do. What we do and how we worship. 
and what we sing? It's only through the gospel that the people living in the darkness can say, we have seen a great light. Because the light is Christ. And he shines the brightest atop Golgotha. John chapter 12, verse 32. What does Jesus say? And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. That's not simply Jesus saying, if you make much of me, that will attract people to me. He's talking about his crucifixion. And John makes the editorial comment in the next verse. This he said, signifying what death he would die. If I be lifted up on the Mount of Golgotha, I will draw all men unto myself. The church at Corinth was not particularly fond of Paul's rhetoric, which is amazing because Paul was a transcendent rhetorician, but Paul kept it simple. Because, and he says this, he didn't, I'm paraphrasing it, but essentially this is what he says, he didn't want their faith to rest on human flash, on the flash of his rhetoric, but rather on the fire of the Spirit. He wanted their faith to be rooted in this demonstration of the Spirit's power through the preaching of the message of the cross. And we need to, I think especially at this point in our church history, we need to say with Paul, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. We are not to be ashamed of the gospel. Now, we could, for pragmatic reasons, preach something else. We could follow someone else and perhaps grow this organization, All Souls Episcopal Church of Horizon West Incorporated. It's a mouthful. But we won't be expanding the borders of the New Eden. We won't be growing the kingdom of God. We won't be bringing honor and glory to him. We can only do that by following the crucified and risen Jesus. Follow me, our Lord says, and I will make you fishers of men. We are to proclaim the gospel in word and deed. And yes, as in these times, as in Paul's day, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, It is the power of God. Jesus says, Follow me 
and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me is an exhortation, a commandment. It's prescriptive. He's asking them to do something. But I will make you fishers of men is descriptive. He's describing what's going to happen if you do follow. One of, one of the things, it's not the only thing, but one of the things that is going to happen, a transformation that's going to take place if you do indeed follow him. So if you follow the light of the world, how it, it works, I think, is if you follow the light of the world, you yourself will be illumined. You will shine, and people will see that. It will have an effect on the world around you. You will be what you're supposed to be, because Jesus says, I am the light of the world, but he also says, you are the light of the world. So that means that we are to be little lights pointing to the light. Our lives are supposed to be like the star which the Magi followed, bringing people to Jesus. A life, because I know maybe the expat, you get nervous talking about evangelism. He's going he's gonna to give us tracks. He's going to get us out in the street corner. He's going to give us bullhorns. He's going to tell me to go into the 7-Eleven. You better not come out of there until that person's prayer gets in his prayer. No. But you need to understand. And that there is a place within the relationship, within the sphere of influence, that, that the gospel will actually have to be articulated. Because we can go too far to the other extreme, right? But understand, and I've seen it in many of you, a life of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, of following Him, has a profound evangelistic edge to it. It just does. Saint uh, Seraphim of Sarov, he's a saint in the Orthodox Church, he says, be at peace and a thousand souls around you will be saved. In this day and age, in this world in which we live, if you, in the power of the Holy Spirit, laboring in the Spirit, it is actually going to take a response on your part. God is not going to zap you tomorrow morning and, and you're going to, oh man, I just, I'm fixed. There's a laboring in the spirit and, and prayer and scripture and sacrament. It's, it's in his power. In this age, if you acquire the peace of Christ, if you are walking behind him, following him and with him, it's going to raise eyebrows. Yes, it will create loathing in some, but in others, a longing. A longing for the Lord. They will want what you have. Again, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And what's the end result? Glorify your Father 
which is in heaven. And with this, when Jesus called Peter and Andrew, the gospel says that, quote, they immediately left their nets and followed him. They lost their livelihood. Sounds like losing your life to find it. They lost their livelihood. They let it go so that they could follow and know life itself. Even hits harder with the sons of thunder, James and John. The gospel says they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. This past week, we celebrated the feast of St. Anthony of Egypt. The thing that I love about his conversion, if you want to call it that, is that he was in church and he heard the gospel read. You want to have eternal life? Go sell all you have Give it to the poor and follow me. And he realized, and he realized rightly, that the gospel being read in the context of the Eucharist means not that I'm reading it, but that the Lord is in our midst speaking a word to his people. He realized that those words were meant for him personally when I did it. So our Lord has stood in our midst. And he said to you, to each one of you, you cannot hide. Follow me. Follow me. So brothers and sisters, let us not delay in following our Lord and following the image of the invisible God. So that when we do, we are renewed in his image and likeness, lifting him high in the proclamation of his death and resurrection. One of the results being that those around us will be drawn to life itself, to the font, to forgiveness and to healing and to restoration that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. That we and those around us would be united with, that we would know the one that we were made to know. Our Lord says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men.